Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. We're here recording live at NAPE. You're not listening to this live unless you're Western Colorado University or somebody else sitting around next to us. And, and I also want to start off letting everybody know a big thank you to Caterpillar and Nape, where deals happen, for the podcast pavilion where this episode was recorded. Caterpillar Oil and Gas can help build the future of energy with more power and less harm. Bringing experts together to deliver the right outcome, we can help configure, implement, and optimize the right power solutions that the world is demanding. Simply put, Caterpillar Oil and Gas has what tomorrow takes. Now, Caterpillar can do great jobs getting that power, getting that energy where it needs to be, but ultimately, one of the things that, that we all need, right, are power lines. We all need to have that electricity getting to us and having that, that energy for, for whatever production we're doing. So I'm very excited to have Sparks Energy on the show here today. I, I, was, I was at the energy conference yesterday and Sparks Energy was a sponsor of it and y'all are a sponsor of NAPE in some form or fashion. So excited to have you here. Now I'm gonna stop talking. Let's have you do an introduction to yourself and a little bit about Sparks Energy. Well, I'm Otis Sparks, I'm the president of Sparks Energy. Founded this company in 2007. Uh, we do power line construction and maintenance uh, throughout the United States. Uh, we've always been heavily utility focused, uh, starting to make a move into the oil and gas sector. Uh, it's where the NAPE made sense for us. Sort of, there's, uh, there's not a power line, or not an oil and gas well in the United States that doesn't need a power line ran to it. And then we also have the renewable sector here, and there's not a solar field or a wind field that doesn't need a power line built out of it. So it was a very good fit for us. Yep, I, I totally agree. When you have that power for oil and gas, you need to produce that power. Ultimately, that ends up meaning pumping. So you need electricity to get that. And to your point, if you've got solar, you've got wind, you need to have that power get out to the end user. Otherwise, what's it doing? Correct. Yeah. So one question that, that I wanted to ask you with, and start off this conversation around is stranded resources. I guess when we're talking about stranded resources, they're stranded more or less because they don't have the infrastructure around them to get that resource to, to the business, to uh, the market. 
And that's where Sparks Energy comes in. So what is that process to build out, I guess, utility transmission lines to get power and to those wells? Uh, it's a big process. Uh, one of the major things affecting the industry are, are right-of-ways and permissions to cross people's property. You know, you can design and, and think up the best power line route that you want. If you can't get the landowners to cooperate, a lot of the projects die on the spot. But, you know, once the land procurement's there, then the transmission construction can begin. And uh, materials are killing us right now being able to get the resources we need to build the lines out. Um, which is, you know, of course, creating microgrid needs. Uh, generators, diesel or uh, natural gas fuel are, are taking the place of the power lines until we can, you know, get the regulatory approvals to get them built to the areas or to get the, uh, you know, you have a lot of dead solar and wind installations where they can't get the transmission out because they're getting them built and you're running into regulatory issues crossing, you know, landowners. From your perspective then, I guess what is, when it comes to building the transmission lines, you said multiple different things, getting right of ways, getting the regulatory permits, and ultimately having the, that, the different end users. What is the hardest part about building out transmission lines? The hardest part of the actual construction is the shortage we're facing in the labor field currently. Uh, our industry has an uh, aging labor force. 60% of our labor force is 55 years old or older, and they're going into retirement. There's a huge decline, and we can't get enough, uh, you know, basically younger people into this industry fast enough. Uh, the, the trades have taken such a beating for so long that we're having to change the view of you know, it's, it's been a culture of go to college, get a degree, and, and you don't need that. We need these young men and women who want to get into our trade and, and learn it. So labor is the hardest thing facing us right now to actually build transmission lines. That's it's a very interesting answer. I think we hear that a lot right now as far as labor shortages and needing the, the workforce to get the job done. I've... I think in a lot of spaces, so I'm a, I'm a geologist during my day job, and in there, that is one of those things that you can have, you can have some automation and you can have some efficiency improvements to go from what used to take four or five geologists into maybe two or three. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine, and, and this is where I want, want to hear what you have to say is, I would imagine you can't really get that much automation or, or that much of a, of a machinery workforce thing that can take the place of manual labor and the humans going in and, and putting in transmission lines. That's correct. Our industry has not changed at all from that. You know, it is, it is still, if not more labor intensive now than it was 30 years ago because due to new safety and production constraints, you need more people to accomplish a job. Now we've had, you know, mechanical technological advances with our equipment, but that's still ran by human beings. It's still, mm -hmm. you know, the poles have to be tamped, the hardware has to be installed, the lines have to be sagged. It's, it's very labor intensive and that's where the, the pay rates have gotten great. I mean, our linemen are making 150 to 200,000 a year now. These are, are skilled workers, you know. Where can I apply for that job? <laughs> SparksInc.com. Go to the application page. 
<laughs> All joking aside, that I think that is something that people don't realize and don't think about often. And and as we talk about energy transition and thinking about solar and wind and electrifying whatever parts of the the current society and current economy that we we talk about electrifying ultimately we will need more transmission lines and we'll need to upgrade transmission lines that are that are currently smaller voltage i i guess i'm starting to get over my skis here but in in that regard what do you see as kind of what does the u.s need to do to build out more transmission or to update the current transmission grid with this wave of renewable energy that that we want to have in the next 5, 10, and 20 years? Yeah, we talk about that a lot around my place because, you know, you, you get scared if you think, what if what if we done away with power lines? But it, it's not going to happen. The, the grid just cannot support the current electric demand and and it takes upgrades in the generation facilities it takes additional wind and solar and even natural gas facilities and then all the lines you know the transmission has to be upgraded the substations have to be upgraded for more capacity your only two options for more capacity is you have to upgrade all the hardware sizing for more ampacity or you have to raise the voltage which decreases the amperage on the lines that requires re-insulation because you have to go through and put in more insulators. It, it, it's, it's something that those of us in the industry can tell you. You know, every home in America couldn't have an electric car tomorrow if we wanted to. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful picture. It's a great thought. You know, we have crews working in North Texas right now where the power's out. It's been mm -hmm. out for two days. It's going to be out for more days. How are you going to charge your vehicles? How, how are you going to run in society when the electricity is not available? You know, you lose wind and solar when the sun goes down. Hmm. It's, uh, you know, you can look at ERCOT has a graph that they just put out where at dark you see the solar dies and then the natural gas has to kick in and take care of it through the night. So, uh, you know, major, major infrastructure upgrades is the only thing that's going to get us there. That or a huge advancement in technology that, you know, reduces electric need. That's really fascinating to, to think about how and where and why we need different different grid advancements i i want to talk a little bit about storage right now is there a difference in building out transmission lines or what your work would be associated with when we're talking about something like storage of of power versus building out to say a, a well pad site uh, there is we don't really do any storage work i mean that that's sort of a, a newer part of the industry for the battery storage i do know that it's a major uphill climb you know the the amount of batteries that it would take to to even run a house much less run your major industrial institutions and what have you it's just not there you know the technology is not where it's got to be and not saying they're not making strides that way but the power lines going nowhere for a long time okay so let's get back to well pads and electrifying those well pads so that we can pump those the oil and gas out of the ground what is the alternative to running transmission lines i mean the alternative are, are generators and microgrids and in some of the uh, stranded asset areas even like in the permian in west texas 
where there's just not the capacity through the transmission and generation for there, they're building out microgrids of generators that have their own substation running those fields while, you know, capacity can catch up. But that's really your only option to a power line is a generator. Hmm. Have you, have you or anybody at Sparks looked at and, and tried to calculate the environmental footprint of running a diesel or natural gas generator for these stranded assets versus building out the transmission lines? Um, no, sir, we haven't. That's just not, you know, we're more of a construction firm than, a, you know, any type of engineering or anything like that. Okay. Have any of your clients come to you saying, we want power and, and this is why and we're willing to pay more for it? Uh, yes, we had a lady just actually at the NAEP today visit us that she's currently running her wells off of diesel generators and it's costing her a fortune and she's needing to get, you know, she's asking us, can we supply the material to get the grid built into her wells? That way she can come off the generators. So yes, I mean, it's full time we're approached with that. Yeah, I guess that's a really good point too, just from an economic perspective that if you are running on generators, you're either directly burning your your commodity that you're producing in that natural gas or you are you're at the whim of whatever the diesel price is well plus transportation you know diesel fuel isn't just sitting in the middle of orla texas it's got to be <laughs> trucked into those generators so yes it's it's a huge cost and a huge burden on them but that's where I'm saying our industry, there's not enough labor to make this happen. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what we're facing full time and equipment woes. Uh, we've had, uh, well, I mean, last month I ordered my 2028 bucket trucks. That's how far the industry is backed up is we're ordered six years in advance now. Wow. Yeah. So I want to, I want to go back to that point you made about North Texas right now. And we had the winter storm a few years ago now. And a lot of a lot of issues there came from either windmills not blowing or natural gas pipelines freezing up. When it comes to transmission, what what does somebody like Sparks Energy have to do to make sure your transmission lines are winterized and ready for these kind of once every two year freezes where everything is frozen for two or three days and we're all stuck in our houses. Yeah, the transmission lines don't really take much damage in that. They're, they're pretty resilient within their self. A lot of that problem came from loss of generation capacity due to freeze ups mm -hmm. in natural gas, you know, the, the wind farms not holding capacity. Uh, and then the distribution grid took some damage from the ice itself. The transmission was fairly, the grid itself was reliable as far as construction and, you know, the physical aspect of it. It was more the generation and distribution side on that. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty interesting to think that as long as the generators are still going, the transmission we don't really have to worry about except for the the off chance that they freeze up and and lines break or a tree falls on them well you know it's catastrophic events you take a, a super heavy ice freeze up a tornado coming through and getting you know some structures but transmission is usually engineered to withstand the pretty harsh uh, conditions as it's built uh, you know we've our largest transmission reconstruction in the history of this company was 28 miles in Oklahoma and it was during an ice storm 
but it's actually just where the line sagged down a train caught it and tore down 28 miles of power lines it it, wow. it didn't fail it just you know wrong place wrong time so <laughs> it, transmission grids are very resilient uh, okay if you can get the power generated to them and keep the distribution up on the other end okay so earlier you mentioned the issue with electricity capacity and we need to build more transmission lines correct how do you have any rough idea how much transmission do we need to build either in capacity numbers or physical miles of transmission lines do we need to build to really have these opportunities of building out all of this renewable energy we're talking about and really even just to get stranded resources back really get them online so they can get to market i don't have those numbers you know joseph i haven't seen that um I can speak for all of our large utility customers, which we service most of the largest utilities in the U.S. Every one of them are scrambling. You know, everyone had this great idea to go to carbon free. And everybody put out their plans that we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, 2035. And everyone was planning on buying the same solar field. And that's the problem is there there was not enough renewables to get. Now everyone's made this commitment to, to get to the renewables that don't exist. That's where the huge construction need has came because everybody had the same idea at the same time. But I, I don't know the numbers as far as the transmission line, how many miles are needed like that. You know, it's an astronomical number. So let me, let me phrase this in a different way. With your current workforce and the people that you're currently talking to, if you were able to say yes to every single one of them today, that you can, you can do that project, they just need to go into your queue how long do you think it would take you to commit and finish every single project you've got lined you know, up we we feel very secure in-house for a 25-year outlook on transmission wow. construction alone and and that's you know evident through uh equipment orders what we're willing to put into training where where we're seeing uh my oldest son's actually here with me he'll probably be the one who takes over the company when i leave and he's 20 years old. I never see him running out of it in his life. He's, he's good to go. Man, that is, that is a lot of transmission to build. And, and as we continue to talk and move towards decarbonization and electrifying, there's just going to be more. Yeah, and it's not just building the new. You know, you spend 25 years building new, and your transmission grid's already 70, 80 years old. So now it's 95 years old. You're, you're back rebuilding. It's not just new construction, it's rebuild. So it, it's a wide open market, you know? Yeah, yep, that is fascinating. Well, I want to ask you a few questions. These are my final questions that I ask all of my guests mm -hmm. and they're a little bit more fun just to get a more feel of who you are and, and kind of your view of the energy transition space and all of that. The first question is, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? The Big Rich. It's about uh, the Texas oil families and the foundation of them. Uh, absolutely amazing book. I have been recommended that book before. I have not had a chance to read it yet, so I'm really excited to. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? You and I won't live to see it. Why do you say that? It's, it's going to take so long. In my, my narrow view and what I see in the power industry, to even catch our grid up to that point, uh, 
you know, is going to take forever. And, and we're, we're still needing that technological advancement for solar to, to help it catch up and play a major role now, unless we look at the new fusion technology that, that mm. was sort of just handed out by the Department of Energy. I can't say there's not a major, you know, innovation that comes along that changes that, but for my current knowledge, you know, you're 50 years out. Fair enough. And I think, I think that's a, an important point to make that we do have a long ways to go. And especially if, if we don't have any further technological advances, we are just going to keep kind of current pace. It's going to take a while. And that's a good, good point. And, you know, we're second to Europe, but we're still, you know, second in the world as far as renewables go. And, and you, you take all your, your uh, emerging, you know, economies that still have to catch up. It, it's a long way to go. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And it's, it's good for us to remember that, remind ourselves we've got a long ways to go because I think one thing that I do a lot on this show, like we talk about, we inspire, we, we bring in the solutions that are being brought, but ultimately each of those solutions, they, they're just one part of the greater solution. And even when you combine all of them, we're still, we're still only a little ways down the, down the trail. And we don't know what we don't know. There's going to be problems with renewables the same as there is with fossil fuels. Yep. We're just starting to learn those problems. Yeah. You know, yep. the, the recycling of the, the solar panels, the recycling of the wind turbines, there's, there's yeah. so much that we're just, just venturing into. Yep, absolutely. Well, the last question, now you actually get to ask me a question. What's your opinion on flat earth theory? <laughs> You know, you mentioned that at the beginning of the show that you, if we didn't have anything to talk about, we could just talk about flat earth theory. Um, I think it is, it is not correctly called a theory. It would be more of a hypothesis. And I think that it is a, I, I, would, I would have to say there is more evidence than not that would say that it is the wrong hypothesis and disproven. I agree. It drives my son crazy that I even entertain it. So, you know, I had to mention it here on a podcast. Well, I think that, I think it, to go into that, dig into that a little bit more, I, I, I do think it is always important to, to see what people have to say and critically think about it. I think another great one is is uh, the existence of Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Like, do people really, really believe Bigfoot is real? There are people who do. But if you if you have the opportunity to look at and and analyze the evidence, then you can make a, an informed decision and an informed opinion. And I, I think for Flat Earth, you can do the same. And I think you'll... You'll land on a on a spherical geoid every time. I, just, I don't think you can compare Sasquatch and flat Earth theory. You you just went off in left field there. <laughs> okay, well, I digress. Right. Well, before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? I think we're good. I appreciate the opportunity, you know, to sit here and spend some time with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode. 
I am getting told that I need to get out of the way for our next group of podcasts. So thank you, everybody. And we will see you next time. Remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.